Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Ephesians chapter 4. Yeah, this should be good. should be good. Okay. Ready for a little story first? Okay. On March 5th, 1776. I didn't expect this much enthusiasm, but I'm grateful for it. On March 5th, 1776, almost 248 years ago, in fact, one of the greatest battles of the American Revolution was waged. At the time, the British Army had overtaken and occupied Boston and its harbor. General George Washington... (laughs) You guys are funny. Okay, General George Washington was determined to take back Boston and chase the Redcoats out of the territory and send them fleeing north. From the Dorchester Heights overlooking the city and its harbor, George Washington and General Putnam organized 16,000 men to work all night long building makeshift walls out of timber and hay. He also commanded his troops to craft hundreds and hundreds of barrels filling them with stones and dirt, requesting that each barrel be tightly nailed so that they wouldn't splinter on impact by bullets. When the patriots began to engage the British, they had the higher ground. And from behind the wall and the barrels, they began volleying 12 and 18-pound cannonballs down upon their enemy. If any attempts by the British were made to climb the hill, The barrels would be turned on their side and rolled down the hill in an attempt to break the legs of the soldiers ascending the hill. This battle and this plan proved highly effective and ultimately it was the the fortified position of the patriots that gave them the upper hand in their mission. Now Washington is remembered as saying during this battle, don't forget the barrels. He was real serious about the barrel thing. Don't forget the barrels. Now what we began uncovering last week is that our like-mindedness as a church, as a people, is our fortification. Like-mindedness is the word we use to describe unity. It's the word, when we say like-mindedness, what we mean is it's unity that is buttressed by truth. It's the wall we we build around the divine order and the objectives of our church. It's the thing that contains us within our space, within our environment of ministry. Like-mindedness is critical to our strength. And as we began studying last week, we were exploring the doctrinal landmarks that we must all be in agreement about in order to be like-minded and ultimately fortified from the enemy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it protects us and that it keeps us. It keeps us safe. And when we turn to your words, it provides us with peace. It provides us with purpose. Uh, We know um, exactly who we are and what we're supposed to be. 
And so in the search for our identity, and as we, as we ask you, Lord, uh, who we are, we ask you to help us define who we are, uh, Lord, we, we recognize that it's critical that each and every one of us align our hearts and minds with the truth of your word. And so as we talk about like-mindedness and about agreeing together on your word, Lord, would you help us to see the value and the importance of that? And, and that we would maybe at moments throughout the service look out upon the congregation and, and, have, uh, and, and, and have your spirit cause us to consider uh, where are the areas of our ministry, where are the areas uh, of our family, of our fellowship that are weak, that require fortification through like-mindedness. There's people here today that, that, that are not yet in discipleship, uh, who've not yet committed their life to the work of learning your word and engaging in your ministry. There are people here that are not attending Bible studies and, and don't have the benefit of, of meeting with their family week after week after week and, and learning to be in family together around your word. And there are people in the room today that just, they know the truth and they just refuse to obey it. They're holding on to sin um, they're hiding it, they're justifying it, and they know they're wrong. And so Lord, wherever we stand today as it concerns what you've called us to, Lord, we would ask that you would convict us and cause us first and foremost to be like-minded with you. And then in so doing, Lord, that we would be uh, like-minded with our brethren. We ask for your help in this work. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So last week as we began, uh, we, we started by presenting you with this very important uh, point, this key point, which is the foundation of unity is doctrinal like-mindedness. It's doctrinal like-mindedness. It's agreement. It's agreement around what the book says. And this, this, this establishes a foundation on which we can build. We know that in Scripture that we are likened to a building. The church is likened to a building. And a building requires a strong foundation. And all of us are contributors to that building. All of us are. Now, what we, what we build, ultimately what we're allowed to build as a local church, will be contingent to some degree on how sure our foundation is in God's Word. And so we have to take it serious. We discussed uh, last week how, how churches can so easily fall out of unity. It happens all the time. In fact, the, the most precarious institution probably in America is the local church. They're constantly opening and closing because ultimately people can't, they can't be agreed. And so there are, there are so many types of churches in our world and and we described a couple of them last week, and, and so I want to hit this again just to remind you. There are, there are churches in our world who see their, their congrega uh, congregants, the people that gather together in their spaces, as patrons of some sort of spiritual product that they put out. And so they seek to entertain. 
They, they seek to present something glossy and exciting. They see their, their church members as people that, that sit underneath their brand. They've established some sort of brand, and, and everybody that comes and attends is, is somehow committed to that brand type. Now, oftentimes, these kinds of churches, they experience, they, 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 they place emphasis on the experience of going to church. So churches like this, look, y'all, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. What I'm about to say this might shock some of you. But when you walk into the lobby of their church, they've got a DJ. Scratching. Because that's what, that's what the people want, I guess. Up there scratching in their sound booth. And they invite famous people to come and hang out, sign autographs. And you go into the service, and, uh, and, and again, there's, <laughs> like, inherently, there are noth- there's nothing wrong. I like, I like DJs. <laughs> I like a, we need more Christian DJs, I think, in the world. <laughs> okay? But, but, so there's not anything inherently wrong with that. But what I'm saying is that this is where the emphasis is. And so people come into service, and the entire package is intended to be a, a, an exciting and invigorating experience. But the problem is that when people leave that experience and you ask them what it was that they learned, they might not be able to tell you. They might not be able to say in any substantive way how they were changed by what they experienced. And so while there might be excitement and, and, and zeal and misguided, you know, passion, it doesn't leave anyone changed. Now, in these settings, many people, they, they don't have a grasp on what they believe. And, and so, so, you know, they're not growing in their faith. And the ones that do... Their positions, they're they're drastically different from one another because when they gather together, they're not talking about the book. They're talking about other things. They're talking about self-help. They're talking about psychology, pop psychology. They're talking about having a better life. And so while people might have positions, they're all divergent. This person might believe one thing, that person might believe another, and they're not becoming like-minded because when they gather together, they're not talking about the one thing that they should be like-minded about. And when these types of churches are tested, they divide. They divide. Now, on the other hand, there are also so many churches who are convinced that they have a strong foundation. Churches who believe that they hold to the authority of Scripture, but upon further inspection, pastors and church leadership are the authority. Church members are often under the thumb of their leaders, under the thumb of the culture within the church. And for these churches, what you believe about, about God is, is actually not as important as whether or not you agree with the pastor. Now, in the other, in the other church, experience was the emphasis, but in some churches, control is. And in these settings, people, they, they parrot the words of their pastor, and they generally they hold to, to 
a lot of times in these churches hold to a series of very legalistic views that they often treat as though they're doctrines. So they might be like-minded. They might be in agreement, lock, stock, and, and, and barrel. They might, they might be in marching order with one another. But it's over things that aren't important. Like how someone dresses or what kind of music they listen to. Or whether or not they went to the movies last week, for crying out loud. And so they, they emphasize these personal preferences and they make them as though they're doctrines. And guess what? When these kinds of churches are tested, they divide. They divide. In both types of churches, the church members are following the tribe. They're following the tribe. They're following the crowd, not the truth. People are standing on a foundation of experience, not doctrine. They want something, but they don't know what it is. And they're left empty. Luke 6, 47 says, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man without a foundation, built an house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And so what we're getting at and what we're studying as we look at this portion of Ephesians, what we looked at last week is this idea that it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters what the book says. It matters what the book says. It matters what the word of God says. And if all of us would come into agreement about what the book says, there is no storm or, or test that will divide us. Which is the very reason why our church does discipleship. Why we place such a, a heavy emphasis on every member of the church getting grounded in God's word. I remember I, I grew up in a, in a Baptist church, going to Baptist church. And uh, it was like, a, it was an old people's church, and I hated it. I hated it. Uh, I went, I was bored. Uh, but the one thing about going to a church like that is all, someone always has uh, Werther's Originals on hand. Yeah. <laughs> Best thing about that kind of church. I wish that we would bring that kind of culture here. <laughs> So that if someone was just looking, it was like, hey, you need a Werther's original? Yes, I do. I always need a Werther's original. Uh, but they didn't, but I wasn't learning anything. Now, I remember um, meeting a, a friend of mine. I, I played basketball in high school, and I, I remember meeting a friend of mine from the basketball team. Uh, we had a really uh, intense spiritual conversation uh, at, at basketball camp of all places. And um, I remember thinking to myself, this 16-year-old, knows the Bible better than my pastor. And it shocked me. And, and, it, and, it, and, and from that knowledge, there was a shift in the way that I thought. And I suddenly came to realize 
that any person that calls themselves a Christian should know the Word of God. They should be familiar with what the Bible teaches. And I wasn't. And it scared me. And so I started attending church with him. And, you know, 25 years later, here I am with y'all hanging out. It changed everything about who I was. But it was the foundation. I needed discipleship. I needed that foundation. I needed someone to teach me the word of God because ultimately every member is a minister. And every person that calls themselves Christian is a preacher. And if you don't know how to preach, then you need to learn the word of God. That's what you need. You need, to, you need to own that responsibility as someone who's been redeemed by Jesus Christ. You need to own the responsibility of knowing God's word and preaching it everywhere you go. And if you say to yourself, well, I'm a Christian, but I just don't know the book. And I, and I do attend church, but I'm just not like-minded. Listen, that has to change. <laughs> like the problem isn't with God. And the problem isn't with God's people. And the problem isn't with God's book. The problem is with you and your inability to pursue the truth of God's word. Your failure to say yes when God has extended to you an opportunity to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You, that's, that is, that's something you can't turn on. And so, last week we started looking at Paul's charge to Ephesus to be like-minded. And, and by like-minded, what we mean is to agree together with the Scriptures over the doctrines and biblical teachings of the Word of God. Right? Now, last week, I thought I was going to cover all seven. And, you know, a few tangents later, we didn't get through, through all of it. So I apologize for that. I felt like a failure. I really did. I had to go home and work through it. Um, but we're going to get it today, no doubt. But we're going to begin with a little bit of review because I look around and I see some people that weren't here last week. And so we're going to begin with a little bit of a review. And we're going to start right here where it says one body, one body. We are supposed to agree together as the church that there is one body, the church of Jesus Christ. One body, the body of Christ. Now, we talked about this briefly, and we're going to come back to this. I'm going to use this as an example later on, but, but we recognize that there's both the universal church and then there's the local church. And what we got to last week and what we tried to understand is that how you engage with the local church says everything about what you believe about the universal church, right? And so, and so we know that there's one body, and, and that body is the universal church. Every saint throughout all of history that's put their faith in Jesus Christ is a part of that body. It's a pretty wonderful and, and, and amazing thought. And all of us one day are going to be gathered together in heaven, and we will get to live as one, completely unified, in, in perfection. But for now, the way, that we, the way that we actualize that kind of unity is to engage in local bodies, into local congregations, and, our, and to commit ourselves fully to the work therewith, and to be a family together. And so, so in order for us to be like-minded, we have to agree in the significance of body life. So how do you do that? How do you measure whether or not we're in agreement? Well, 
first of all, you'll gather with the saints. You'll gather together. When the church doors are open, you want to be there. You're not, you're not hiding at home. You're not busy with other things. When the family of God comes together, you want to be with them. Why? Well, that leads us to the second point. You love the saints. You, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You care for one another. Now, I know that that's hard for some of you. I know that's hard for some of you. You know, and, and so he, he, this, is, this is the problem with living in 2024. In 2024, we are convinced that everywhere we go, we should get our needs met. We are so impatient. When this screen went out, did you guys see that when that screen went out? I wanted to go up to the screen where it said cancel. I thought like I, like I should be able to just go up there and hit cancel on the, on the screen. And that that should work, magically work. Because we live in, a, in like a fairy tale world where everything we want should just be as, like I should be able to just think it and it should happen. That will happen one day. That's called the mark of the beast. But my point is that every, in our mind, we think everything should come so conveniently to us. And anything that's a little bit messy, it gets us like, ugh, ugh. Listen to me. There's no way around it. The body of Christ is a messy place. And I have to hear about it all the time because, because people, people get frustrated with one another. Is that funny? I love that Braden always thinks that, like, things are funny that, like, no one else laughs at, but he, for him... <laughs> But it's, it's true. People, people come to me grumpy at one another, and they tattle. They like to tattle on each other. Now, I just want to lovingly just say it right now. If I had someone to tattle to besides God, I would do it. But I just go to him about you all the time. <laughs> Every single freaking one of you. <laughs> I'm tattling to God. Look, we just, we just have to recognize that it's messy and it's hard, but it's worth it because of love, because of forgiveness, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if we're willing to sacrifice, I had a, I had a brother uh, recently this, this week say, well, I'm not, what is it, what do you mean when you say love? What do you mean when you say, when you say love? What I, what I mean by that, when I say I love you, what I mean is, I would, will, I would be willing to give of myself for you. That's a really simple definition of love. Because the perfect love, the love of Jesus Christ, was that very thing, wasn't it? He gave his life for us because he loved us. And so perfect love manifests in us, says, says hey, I, I love you. And that means that I'm willing to meet your needs. I'm willing to meet you in your weakness. I'm, I care for you. I'll, I'll, I'll go the distance or I'll say the hard word knowing that you might not like it. You might not always like it, but because I love you and I care for you, that means that we've got we've to push up against each other. There's, there's got to be some tension. There's got to be some abrasion or we're not getting any better as a church. So it has to be love and then there has to be ministry. We have to, we have to work together. There's work to be done. There's, there's work to be done. There's a world out there that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And while we sit in here and we have a good time as a family, they're out there. They're out there doing stuff. They're out there at the grocery store. 
I mean, I try to imagine what would I do if I was lost. I've been saved a long time. I don't know what they're doing. I don't even know what they're doing out there on a Sunday morning. It's like a mystery to me. I've been coming to church so long. I try to imagine what's it like. I mean, in my mind, it's like, it's like the red light district on Sunday mornings out there all over the world, but they're probably just in their pajamas. They're probably just in their pajamas watching Netflix, which is what they do with all the rest of their time. Anyway, so, but, but my point is that we've got something to do, and that's, that is, we have to work together to go reach those people. We have to do that. And so what's the proof in, in, in the, the idea or the concept? And this is just a few things, right? What's the proof that we are agreed about the, there being one body? Well, it's that we gather together, that we love one another, and that we work together in the ministry. The other thing that we talked about was one true spirit. So we must be agreed that there is one spirit, the third part of the triune God, the Holy Spirit. And Christians are indwelled by the spirit. Our spirit was dead before we knew Christ. Our lowercase spirit, lowercase s spirit, was dead before we, knew, before we knew Jesus Christ as our Savior. When we put our faith in him, his spirit quickened our own. And, he, and he, we became his habitation, which is an amazing thing. So, so how, do we, how do we know whether or not we're agreed together about the Holy Spirit? Because we can agree with our words. That's mental ascension. But, but do we agree with our lives? That's, that's the real question. And so we can know that we're agreed when we glorify, our, glorify God with our body. When we glorify the Lord with our body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we can, we can know that we're agreed. Okay, so let's, again, I'm trying to make this super practical. And the, and the most practical and most immediate thing is how did you engage with the worship that we were just in? Right? How did you engage? Were you, like, thinking about other things? Were you kind of lost in your thoughts? Or were you wholly given over to hearing from the Lord and being with him and lifting up his name and magnifying him and, and making sure that he sits on the throne of your heart? What, how were you engaging? Okay, well, we could take that same question and apply it to every aspect of our life. When you go to work, when you go to work, are you glorifying God with your body? I mean, do people at work, I mean, people at work know, don't they? They know. They see the way that you behave, the way that you engage. They know whether or not that you, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Even if they don't know what that means, they know. So do you glorify God with your body? And the other thing is that you, if, if, if you believe that there is one true spirit, that means that you refuse all the other spirits. If, if there is one true spirit, that means that there are, there are spirits in the world there are evil and lying spirits. There are, there are spirits of false teaching and there are f spirits of false ways. The Bible's been very clear about this. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And so we know, we know how you feel about the Holy Spirit and what you believe about the Holy Spirit. If you recognize the Holy Spirit as the one true spirit, and everything that contradicts this book as a false spirit. Yeah. 
Because the Holy Spirit of God confirms the words within this book. He affirms them as true in our heart. And he confirms them as true in in the function of our lives and in, in comparing Scripture with Scripture. And so anything that falls outside the boundaries of this book, even if it's a spiritual experience, you know, uh, uh, some of you know this from discipleship and the lesson on on the Holy Spirit. Um, I believe it's the the lesson on the Holy Spirit. Um, If I remember correctly, when when Peter is talking about, no, it's it's on the, the Bible lesson. This is in the Bible lesson. Um, and and, and we, when, when Peter, we, you, you go cover this in the, in, in, in the, the lesson, when uh, Peter, who was at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And, and he's there, it's him and uh, uh, James and John, and they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they watch as Jesus' body is transformed into a body of light. And he's talking, he's talking with Moses and Elijah, they're engaging on the mount, and they're talking, and, and, and Peter is like, at, like in the midst of this, he hears the voice of God the Father, and then he's like, oh, look, we need to stop what we're doing right now, and we need to build three temples. Like, I don't even, where, where was the resource for that? That's what I read that, I'm like, he wants to build three temples right there, like with what? He just pulls out a hammer, he's like, ready to go, let's build them, it's time. And, and Jesus is like, no, bro, we're not doing that. We don't need to do that. That's okay. Um, but then later, Peter is reflecting, and he's talking about, uh, in, in one of his letters, he's talking about that experience. And then he says, we have a, a more sure word. He says, that, that experience was amazing. That spiritual experience, hey, top five. Top five <laughs> spiritual experiences. Okay, amazing. I mean, I, I, I mean, you could almost not believe your eyes, which is the very point. Which is the very point. His point is that the word of God is more sure than even that experience that he had with God. Like, there's no denying that that happened. But the words written on these pages, preserved for thousands of years now, is more Sure, more certain than even that experience. Now, I wonder if you believe that that's true in your Christianity. I wonder if you believe that that's true. Because listen to me, the only way to resist the angel of light, right? We, we understand that the devil himself can transform. He, he, can, he can become an angel of light. He can give, if you're looking for spiritual experience, guess what? The devil's got that for you. If you're looking for an exciting Christian experience where you feel all warm and fuzzy inside and and you're falling out for Jesus' name, if that's what you're looking for, listen to me, listen to me. The The devil's got you. He can hook you up. Because if he keeps your eyes off this book and he keeps your eyes on spiritual experience... You will just be as misguided as you've ever been. So it's this book and what we believe about the Spirit of God 
that tells us whether uh, uh, or what, what we believe about false spirits tells us what we believe about the Spirit of God. Continuing on. One hope of your calling. We talked about this idea that, that our hope is in Christ and his return. So we must be agreed that there is but one hope, and that is that Christ will one day return and call his saints home. And we look to that. We look to that belief. We're waiting on that. We're excited about that. Now, how do I know that we're agreed about this doctrine? Well, first of all, you watch with expectancy. You watch with expectancy. Titus 2.13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We should be looking with anticipation for Christ's return. We should be excited about it. Now, listen, we have to believe, too, that, it's, that it could happen at any moment. That he, could, that he could return and he could lay claim on the purchased possession anytime. Anytime. Now, that affects the way that you live. That affects the way that you live. And so you will begin to live life with a sense of urgency. You will begin to function as though you might not have tomorrow. Now, I think, I think in my life, it's a combination of a couple things. Like, I believed intellectually that Christ could return at any moment. I believed that. I believed that, really, most of, my, most of my life. I believed that. That Jesus was coming back, and it could be any day. I mean, that's what Paul believed. That's what the saints of old believed. And that's what I believe, too. Okay? And all the signposts are, are pointing that direction with a greater and greater clarity. Now, this became, became uh, really solidified in my thinking the moment that people I loved started dying. And I realized that really, whether Christ returns or he calls me home, I don't really have tomorrow. Whether he shows up with, with trumpets and it's exciting and we all meet him in the sky, or my, or my number is just called on 71 Highway, because I believe if it's going to happen, it's going to happen... <laughs> That's where it's going to happen. It's, I believe it's the most dangerous place in our city. <laughs> 27th and Jackson has nothing on just a casual drive down 71 Highway. Okay? It's scary. I don't understand all those lights on the highway. I don't understand it. Um... But, be, but because, because I believe that Christ could return or, or he could just call me home, it, it affects the way that I live and it affects the way that I speak with people and treat people. And it causes me day by day to think about the people in my life that don't know Christ. And if Christ did call me home or called them home, where would they be? What surety do I have that the people that I love know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? I mean, these are the things that preoccupy the mind of a person who has a hope in their calling. It affects the way that you think. And it's a doctrine that we need to hold to. Next, we have one Lord. One Lord. We must agree that there is but one Lord, and that, that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we talked about, we talked about this uh, briefly last week, and we talked about the idea that, that there are lots of Jesuses out there, Right? 
there are lots of, of characters uh, in what I would refer to as like the mythology of religion with the name Jesus, right? And, uh, you know, in some ways he might even look like our Jesus. He might have been a carpenter and he might have lived in the first century and he might have, he might have had disciples. And, and oh yeah, by the way, he's the brother of Lucifer, right? I'll just throw that in there. What I'm saying is that people, people characterize Christ and they invent doctrines about him that just aren't true in relation to what the scriptures say. And they build false religions around it. Now, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as described in the Bible, in the Holy Bible. That's the Jesus that we believe in. And we put our faith in him. We don't have to work for his salvation. He came and he died. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and rose again so that I could receive his free gift. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to do anything for it. All I have to do is put my faith in him and know that he did the work. Believe that he did it. That's pretty amazing. That's a pretty amazing thing. And so because of that, because, because I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I agree that there is but one Lord, I obey him. That's what I do. I obey the Lord. John 14, 21, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. And Judas said unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. And he that loveth me, or he that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Listen to me. If you love Jesus and you believe that he's your Lord, you will obey the words that he says. I don't even know what else to say about that. Because there's so many of us that are disobeying. And we say that we love Jesus, but we're liars. I mean, that's what this says. We are, we're, we are liars, He's our Savior. He's our Lord, and we obey our Lord. And that's how I know, that's how I know that you believe there is one Lord, because you will obey him. You'll obey him, and I'll obey him. Okay, one faith, and this is kind of where we got cut short last week. One faith. We must agree that there is one faith, one doctrinal tradition found within a literal interpretation of the Bible. So these were the, the teachings that were handed down from the apostles and were calcified by the inspired scriptures, okay? So God spoke to holy men of old and they wrote that stuff down. And that's what we call the Bible. And that's what we believe. Now, many people in, in many churches, they don't, they don't teach doctrine anymore. They don't teach it. They don't teach doctrine. Doctrine's not important. And so what happens is what they, they got to teach something when they get together. Got to talk about something. And so what they talk about is self-help. That's what they talk about. That's what they talk about. They talk about making your life better. 
Now, people have different slants on that, okay? Uh, sometimes you, you, you'll find that people will talk a lot about having more money in church as though that's the most important thing. And they talk about, well, if you want to be blessed, if you want to have, you know, successful finances, then you've got to do these things. And that's what they talk about. Or they talk about politics. They emphasize politics. Oh, if you want the world to be right, if you want things to get fixed, well, you got to know who to vote for. Boy, that's bleak. That's a, that's a, that's a bleak approach. Okay, there's a lot of work to do in that, that realm if things are going to fall out right. Uh, it ain't happening. It ain't happening. Right? They talk about akin to that, social justice. Well, if we want the world to be right, well, then we'll do things to make the world right. And so our behavior and what we decide to do with our time and energy and money will make the world a better place to live. And, and, and there's varying degrees on that. I mean, some people will go as far as saying that, that, that then we'll be a world that Christ can receive. That, that's what they believe. They believe that once we make things good and pretty here, then Jesus will show up and he'll be like, good job, guys. Let's eat. Let's eat. Let's eat. Let's have steaks. Um, that's what they believe. You think I'm joking. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not joking there. Uh, but, but then it could just be as simple as like, well, well, this is heaven. And so if we want this to be the heaven uh, that we all want it to be, um, as Christians, we'll real, work real hard at um, making sure that the, the poor have food and resources. And by the way, we can't, none of us will agree on how to do that. And so they, we end up fighting and skirmishing about money or, or time or resource. We'll fight about that. And then we'll divide about that. And then we'll defeat the whole point. And so my point to you is this, is that God gave us doctrine. He gave us teachings in his word. And when we focus on this, suddenly we discover who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. And doctrine informs our life. The pastor isn't supposed to be a glorified life coach. He's supposed to be a teacher of truth. And in these kinds of churches, and in these kinds of churches, people come together with a focused attention on what God actually wants. What he, what he really wants. Not what they think he wants. What he really wants. No one wants to say anymore. No one wants to say this is true because the Bible says so. They don't want to say that anymore. They don't want to say this is, this, is, this is true or this is not true according to the, to the Bible. You know, sometimes, sometimes I get flack from time to time. Not, it's rare. It's rare. From time to time, I'll get flack for pointing out what's not true. Like when someone, like for instance on the postscript, we've done some episodes where I, we put false teachers on blast. And, and people don't like that. Big surprise. I didn't know. I thought everybody loved everything uh, that was out there. But, but uh, no, they don't. They don't. They don't, they don't all like it uh, when you say that so-and-so taught this thing and it's not in Scripture and it's not true. And I'm warning you because I don't want you to fall prey to it. They don't, li- they don't always like that. Sometimes that, that gets their feathers ruffled up. No one, wants, no one wants to establish what is and isn't true from the Bible anymore. 
So much of it relies on their feelings. Listen, we have one faith. Uh, Chesterton said this thing that I think is really interesting. Tolerance, which is what we all think we want to have. Tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? I, I, wanted, I was like, can I claim this is my own? I, I'd love to. <laughs> if I was a good Baptist preacher, I would just own that. But no, I, I'm going to give credit. I'm going to give credit where it's, where it's due. So tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. Now, where do convictions come from? Where do convictions come from? Well, they should come from the faith that's been handed down to us century after century by saints that have bled and died for what's true. And so because I have convictions, by necessity, there are things that I refuse. There are things I say no to. There are things that I can point out with definitive belief that they're wrong, that they're a lie, that they're misguided, that they're foolish, that they're ignorant. I can do that because I have truth. And as much gray as exists in our world and so much is hard to understand, we can't sift through it, there's one thing I know that's not gray. And that's a black and white that I see on the pages of this book. Let God be true and every man a liar. And so there are things that are not worth tolerating. And so people, people without convictions, they build churches without convictions. And churches without convictions will always be divided in their purposes and wavering in their zeal. So how do we know that we're agreed that there is one faith? Well, you'll receive it. You'll receive it. You will be teachable. Some people, not very teachable. Some people, they come here, they, they, they want to be a part of what we're doing, but they don't want to be taught. Like everything else. Everything else is cool. But just, I've got, every, I've got the teaching part figured out. I've got it all going on up here. So if you just, if you just give me the mic, uh, I, could, I could share with everyone about how smart I am. I mean, this is kind of the attitude that people come to church with. And listen to me, we have to all be teachable. Man, how much, how much I don't know. I mean, I've listened to sermons like the one Sam just taught, I don't know, 50 times, all from him. I loved, I know, I've been with him a long time. That sermon was incredible. What we get from that kind of teaching is incredible. I have, I have to be teachable, and so do you. We have to be teachable. We have to, we have to preach what we believe. We have to preach what we believe. You preach it. If you believe it's true, you believe there is one faith that's been handed down to you through Scripture, through the Apostles' Doctrine, then you will preach that, man. You will preach it everywhere you go. You will not stop talking about it. If you believe that this book has been preserved, how do you not talk about it? Like if God breathed this into existence, and, it's, and, and despite men's best efforts, it's continued on from strength to strength, that the, that the church, the, the foundation of the church has been built on this, the cornerstone of Christ and, the, and, and this truth, Man, you can't stop talking about that, or you shouldn't be able to. And you'll teach it. You'll teach it to others. You'll disciple people. You'll spend time pouring over the words with people. And you'll contend for it. You'll fight for it. You'll defend its words. You'll be diligent to make sure that, that you understand it and that you can defend it. People are always trying to tear, tear my Bible down. 
there is, there, there is a constant effort to make sure that you can't trust your book. And so you got to know it. you got to know it. you got to be able to contend for it. Because it, listen to me, no matter what anyone says, and you don't have to believe me on this, just keep studying long enough. There ain't a single contradiction in this entire book. Amen. No matter what anyone tells you. There ain't a contradiction. You won't find it. Every apparent, every, every contradiction that exists, that you, that you think exists there, it's only an, an apparency. And you can explain it very simply, usually by just reading it in its context. 90% of the time, just read it in its context. Compare it with another passage in Scripture, and the light bulb clicks, and you realize again, oh yeah, the Bible's perfect. Contend for the faith. Know the book and contend for it. Next, we have one baptism. One baptism. We must agree that there is one baptism. One baptism, which is a saving baptism. It's a saving baptism. And your water baptism, when you were dunked in water, it only typifies, it only shadow types the saving baptism. Okay, so let me, let me explain. Contextually, since we, we know that Paul refers to one body, okay, we know this. Like, bear with me for just a second. He says one body. But we know that there is the universal church and that there's the local church. Okay, we can kind of, we can make that connection that, well, there's one body, yeah, but, but we know that there's the local assembly, there's a local body, but there's also a universal body. So there seems to be, okay, there, is there two bodies? No, there's one. There's one true body. And then, and then he says there's one spirit. Despite the fact that we know that there is the Holy Spirit, but then there's also spirits in the world. And so there are multiple spirits. There's just one spirit to rule them all. There's one true spirit. There are many spirits, but there's one spirit. You understand? Similarly, similarly, we can say that there's one baptism, referring to the truest form of baptism, the baptism that, that, that every other form of baptism in Scripture shadows. And that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the point of our salvation. So we know that in Scripture there are seven distinct baptisms in Scripture. We also know that baptism is an ordinance of the church that, that publicly signifies that a person has believed in Christ. We know, I mean, we can see that in Acts chapter 8, verses 24 through 40. We know that when someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that the next step of obedience is to get in front of everybody and get dunked in a big thing of water, right? Because it signifies what Christ has done in your heart. And it's a public display that you want to engage with Jesus Christ as a disciple, right? You put your faith in him, the next step to obey him, get dunked in some water. We know that to be true. But what Paul is doing in, in the letter to the Ephesians is calling the church to understand this foundational truth necessary for our unity, and that is that there is one baptism that rules over all other kinds of baptism. And the true baptism is the cleansing of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. So in this case, the one baptism is most certainly the baptism of the Spirit, which binds the church together in peace, Ephesians chapter 4.3, and establishes the unity that we are to be endeavoring for. So in other words, check this out. 1 Corinthians teaches this. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are the temple 
of the Holy Spirit. So how do we become the temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, you have to join yourself to Christ through salvation. That's, that's how we become unified. That's why this baptism is so important. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. For, for by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and, and have been, uh, been all made to drink into one Spirit. So it's this baptism into the Spirit through salvation that unifies all of us together. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have, made, uh, have been all uh, made to drink into one Spirit. So this is a... This Immersion, the baptism, the word baptism means immersion. This immersion is a spiritual immersion. Romans 6, 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been, been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So the foundational truth that we must agree upon is that when we, that when we were saved, when we believed on Jesus Christ, we were immersed into Christ by the Spirit. With this in mind, we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we measure whether or not that we're agreed or unified on this doctrine? Now, this is a tricky one because not like there's a lot of churches with a lot of beliefs about baptism, okay? And, and, and so there might be some people in here that aren't unified in this way, and I want to point something out to you, that, that the Word of God, the Word of God deserves to be divided rightly. And so, so you have to understand baptism based on what Scripture says as you compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, I know that there are many different beliefs about this, okay? But I want to say, once again, that those beliefs all arise out of taking Scripture out of context. You understand? So, so if we're going to be unified on this, then we need to believe faith in Christ saves you, not religious works. That's the first thing. That faith in Christ saves you. Faith in Christ saves you, not religious works. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, we believe that one baptism, the one baptism is the work of salvation and the Holy Ghost indwelling us. Now, the one true baptism is not speaking in tongues. The baptism of the Spirit is not speaking in tongues. Okay? Now, if you need to go back and listen to our 1 Corinthians chapter 13 study in order to better understand that, you should. But I'm telling you right now, we come to faith through Jesus Christ, through belief. And we are immersed in his spirit. I mean, we just read the verses on it. I, don't, I want to go back. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 6, it's very, very clear that we are baptized through faith into Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's real simple. And so we don't need to speak in tongues to signify whether or not we're saved. We don't need to do that. If you've got more questions about that, come forward after service. Someone will talk to you about it. The one true baptism is not infant baptism. If you were, if you were baptized as a baby, that has nothing to do with whether or not you agree with the one true baptism. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about some sprinkling that took place. We're not talking about, we're not even talking about the biblical believer's baptism. We're not talking about that. We are talking about believing in Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him and then the Holy Spirit making us one with Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about having all of our sins washed away, cleansed. So, so how do we know we're unified? Well, we believe the same, that, that Christ saves us, not religious works. Also, we believe that your life is transformed. Your life is being transformed because the Holy Spirit indwells you now, right? You're now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and so your life is being transformed. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23 talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit are manifest in people who walk in the Spirit, People who are dead to carnal desires and they yield themselves over to God and they walk in the spirit of newness of life. And then these things become true about them. Love, joy, uh, peace, uh, uh, gentleness, goodness, patience, long-suffering. Like these things become true of us when we put our faith in Christ. Understood? One more thing. We got one more thing. We're right up against it. How'd I do this again? Okay. <laughs> Number seven, one God and Father. We must agree that there is one God and Father who has adopted us into his family. Paul liked to emphasize God as his Father. He liked to do that. We see that a lot in Ephesians. It says, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are his children in the same, in the same family with one another. Lovingly serving the same Father. See, the children in my house, I got three kids. The children in my house should see me, if I'm doing my job right, should see me as a unifying force in my home. And I use my love, I use my authority to organize us as a family under a single cause. That the way we all think, it should be thinking the same way. We should be tending the same direction. That's what a good father does. Now, this is how we should live in light of God the Father over our church. He is, the, he is the organizing force of love and authority. And we obey him and we respect him. So with this in mind, how do we measure whether or not you're unified in this doctrine? Well, you worship him. You worship him. You worship as, uh, God as your father. John 4.23 says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father seeketh such to worship him. That's what he's looking for. Your Father in heaven is looking for you to worship him. That's what he wants. And that's how you'll show him the affection that he deserves. You'll worship him. Now, here are, here are seven core doctrines, doctrines that we, of course, did not exhaust. So much could be said about these things. In fact, that's what we have discipleship for. So that's what we want you to do. We want you to take discipleship seriously. But here's the point that I want to make. All Christian fellowship... And unity is fixed by agreement 
within these biblical concepts. So further, I want to point out to you that we can't, we can't do church together properly unless we pursue like-mindedness surrounding these things. Amen? No, just get, just, some of y'all give an amen just because I asked for it. If you don't agree, don't amen. <laughs> don't, don't do it. But I'm asking. I'm asking you. I want to know. Do you understand that our unity is contingent on whether or not we agree on these doctrines? Because if we all believe different things, how can we walk together? 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Romans 15.4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may be with one mind and one mouth, that you would glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the closing point. Unity within your church, unity within your church establishes continuity in your identity. What do I mean by that? In the Christian faith, you can't know yourself outside of the whole. You don't get to be a Christian cowboy or cowgirl and go out there riding the, 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 the range alone, wandering out there looking for truth, looking for a purpose. You don't get to be that kind of person. There is, there is not a complete personal identity without knowing yourself within the communal identity of God's body. The church provides us with an opportunity to learn and submit to God's word. The church provides us with framework and, and that's intended to help us to exercise our gifts. It provides us with outlets to live out the Christian mission. The church provides us with loving and secure relationships. The church provides us with the relational tension necessary for sanctification. Our unity as a church, our unity as a church requires that we fortify, that we fortify. Our strength within a world of relativism and shifting sand requires that we fortify. And so I plead with you, don't forget the barrels. Don't forget the barrels. Do not forget the foundation of our faith. As a Christian, will you fortify your life by agreeing together over God's word with God's people? Will you? Now, how do I do that? You're asking yourself. Well, we're going to have counselors up here. We're going to sing. We're going to close with a song of worship. I know we went long again. I promise that we won't do it next week, okay? I promise. We're going to have counselors up here. We're going to sing a song of worship as we close. And if you need to talk through what your next steps are, you come forward and do it. But in short, get discipled. Learn the book. Go to Bible study. Get knit together with the body of Christ. Find a Bible study. Join yourself in LFBI. Go deeper in God's word. Learn to be a functional minister for, for, for the, the... What's up, bro? You snuck up on me. 
Learn to be a functional minister prepared to preach and teach the gospel with anyone who asks. These are some things that you can do in order to be more like-minded with the body of Christ. All right? Okay, let's stand and worship. If you need something, come forward. There'll be counselors right up here. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for our time together in your word. Lord, help us to be more agreed than we ever have been. Lord, help us to gather around your book and study it and sharpen ourselves around it. And then, Lord, stand more like-minded, more unified than we ever have. Well, we, we love you. We need you. We know that if, if it's left to our own devices, if, if we're each pursuing our own passions and, and predilections, if we're all trumpeting uh, some agenda or opinion, but Lord, we know that ultimately we will be divided as a people. And so, Lord, uh, help us to, to shun uh, vain uh, and, and profane glory. And, Lord, that we would want to glorify your name around your truth. We ask for your help. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.